This morning we are going to be talking about biblical prophecy. And to get us sort of warmed up, I wonder if you've noticed how many people seem to know so much about biblical prophecy that end up not being very biblical. It's kind of ironic. It's kind of strange. Some of the people who seem to come across as if they know the most about biblical prophecy, on second look, what they're promoting as biblical prophecy is actually not very biblical. I have a few examples just to kind of get us warmed up and moving forward. Um, oftentimes people talk about whether or not we're living yet in the last days. Based upon this newspaper article, based upon this thing I saw on the news, based upon this blog, I wonder, could it be that we're living in the last days? I wonder if we're getting close to the last days. As a brand new Christian, as a college student, I would subscribe to different newsletters. I was a hungry Christian. I wanted to learn about all of these things. And newsletters would come and they would talk about, well, based upon this and this and this, it seems like we're getting close to living in the last days. Well, some of you have a smile on your face and are, are chuckling, I see, because you know your Bible well enough to know that we are living in the, the last days. And we have been living in the last days since Jesus came to earth, lived, died, was raised, and ascended. It's all over the New Testament. I'll just give you the ever so quickly version. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. But in these last days... He's spoken to us by His Son. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, It is the last hour. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Peter's writing to people and he says they're in the last times. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has Come. Second Timothy 3, 1 would be another example. Jude verse 18 would be another example. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 3 would be another example. Acts 2, 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it seems to be what happens in Acts 2 and following. That's just a sampling. So here, I wonder if, I wonder if we're getting close. I wonder, I wonder. Christians who read their Bible are like, We've been in the last days for a long time. It's maybe not the, the last day, but we definitely are living in the last days post-ascension of Christ. There's one example where prophecy experts or people who are so into it seem to maybe not even be reading their Bibles, strangely enough. Another example would be that that one book in the Bible, maybe you should all turn to it, it's the book of Revelations. Oh, yes, the book of Revelations. Someone once said to me, they said, you know, I, I just can't see myself uh, coming to Omaha Bible Church. I need to go to a different church because you don't preach on the book of Revelations enough. <laughs> and I thought to myself, the day I preach on the book of Revelations is the day the elders fire me. Because there is no book of Revelations in the Bible, okay? Uh, I, oh, I've preached through the whole book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse, uh, all 22 chapters, but there's no book of Revelations, Bible prophecy expert. <laughs> it's bizarre. It's wild. Uh, maybe one other example. I'm just getting this off my chest to kind of get us warmed up here. Actually, where I'm going is I, I kind of have a bad taste in my mouth about biblical prophecy. 
and I suspect some of you do as well. And where we're going is we're going to hear from Jesus so we can get the bad taste out of our mouth. Because biblical prophecy is actually really important, and Jesus speaks clearly about it. And thankfully, Jesus can help us to sort through some of the chaos and not look down on it, but be encouraged and motivated by it. I did have one other example. Um, the, the Bible prophecy experts that say you always have to take numbers in the Bible literally in order to understand prophecy. I've promoted that narrative before. I paid good money to learn that before. But you all, when you read your Bible, don't take the numbers all literally. You take some of them literally. Some of you, some of them you don't take literally. And sometimes you say, I'm not sure which, which way it should be. But we were just in Matthew 18. Well, I guess kind of a long time ago. But not too long ago, we were in Matthew 18. And Peter and Jesus have a dialogue back and forth about forgiveness. And Peter wants to be extra gracious. Should we forgive seven times? And Jesus says, no, you don't forgive seven times. You forgive what? Seventy times seven. What's that? 490. So now that I'm getting to like 489 with my wife, if she goes 491, I'm done. Because you got to take numbers literally. (laughs) See, we all laugh at that. But maybe we shouldn't laugh at that. Just keep forgiving. It's symbolic. And my favorite one, and I apologize to like men in theology for breakfast and uh, that because I say this all the time. But then there's that one about cows. You say, what do you mean that one about cows? The Bible teaches that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet I was told that thousand always means thousand, always and forever thousand means a thousand. If the Psalm 50, I think it is, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My question is, who owns all the other cows? Think about it. There's probably more than a thousand hills. What's Psalm 50 talking about? God doesn't need your gifts. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you to contribute. God is sovereign, independent, all-powerful. He owns everything. In fact, we'll put it this way, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But the author's not suggesting there are some cows that God doesn't own because thousand is to be taken literally. It's a figure of speech. So thank you for letting me get this off my chest. I've got a really bad taste in my mouth about biblical prophecy that's not biblical. Approaches to biblical prophecy that's not biblical. And I think men and women like you Men and women like you who've been Christians for some time reading your Bible, read your Bible like a sane person. Maybe saner than those who pay big bucks to learn from the experts. I would just encourage you to keep reading your Bible like we'll do today. And let's understand what Jesus says, even though we'll still have some questions. For sure we'll still have some questions. Matthew 24 is our text. Matthew 24 and then 25. We'll just do 24 today with a little bit of review. If you're just joining us, welcome. Glad you're here. We're studying this gospel account and we're in chapter 24. We're going to do the whole chapter today, a little bit of its review. Jesus talks about the end. And so we're going to learn some things about biblical prophecy. How about this? I promise everything that we read from Matthew 24 today will be true. Every bit of it will be true. All of my explanations, no guarantees, okay? 
but they're designed to help encourage the disciples and the disciples after them to keep looking to Christ as the Savior. No matter what happens in the world, don't flinch from looking to Christ, the one who saves his people from their sins. So even when things are going badly, even though there's difficulty, even though you have lots of questions, keep looking to Christ is the takeaway. Okay, the takeaway is not who can draw the best chart. The takeaway is not who can predict the end. Uh, the takeaway is keep looking to Christ. There's an ethical emphasis. Don't be afraid and don't walk away. It's worth it even though it might be hard to be a Christian. In fact, it might be harder to be a Christian than it was to be an unbeliever. But it's worth it. Okay, Matthew 24. Let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to have to go fast. I've ha- I- I'm well caffeinated. Hopefully, I'm also well prayed up as well. Um, a man today, a newer man at the church said to me after first service, he said, Pastor, keep attacking the Bible. <laughs> Nobody's ever said it quite that way to me. Keep attacking the Bible. And he didn't mean as a negative. He's like, you just keep, keep going after it. So he said, you know what I mean, right? I said, I know what you mean. I've never heard that before, but I like it. So join me now in attacking the Bible. <laughs> as in, we're going to get after it and learn from Jesus and take it seriously so we can live in light of what he says. Okay, so let's get after it. Verse 1 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. This is verse 1. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. That's significant because in chapter 23, Jesus pronounced all of his woes upon Israel. And that the te- he, he alludes to the fact that the temple is going to be destroyed even in chapter 23. See, your house is left to you desolate, referring to the temple. And so Jesus has been lambasting Israel for her unfaithfulness. And in response, the disciples want to say, yeah, but Jesus, did you notice how good the temple looks? I don't blame them. It would have looked great. Then it says in verse 2, but he answered them, you see all these do you not? Of course they do. They were just pointing out these wonderful things to Jesus. Truly I say to you, verse 2 says, there will not be left here one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. Judgment is coming. And if that temple is destroyed, it's symbolic, it's emblematic, it represents God's displeasure with those people. Judgment is coming upon the household of God in light of what they've done and will do to Jesus. Then let's keep going in verse 3. Here's what the disciples say. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So so tell us when and tell us what the signs are going to be. And I would encourage you not to fault the disciples for thinking about this. They, they, they associate these things together, and I, I would say rightfully so. If you are the Messiah, the Christ, and they're believing that he is, he will come to judge, and he will come to deliver, because that's what messiahs do, anointed kings do that. And so and they're seeing it as, okay, if the temple is destroyed, that's judgment from God. It's happened before historically. And that means you have the coming of Messiah, It all makes sense. So I think they should be thinking in these terms. Now, we know a little bit more because we know second coming doesn't happen right there and then. That there's a delay kind of like is fairly common in Old Testament prophecies. 
everything it says is true, but there might be a distinction between first coming and second coming. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 9. You have incarnation emphasis, but then you have ruling and reigning emphasis. And we say, yeah, first coming and second coming, but Isaiah 9 treats them together. I think these are treated together as well, but they're not, they're not wrong in their thinking. They're thinking the right sort of way. And then we're going to dig into some of the details of the text. But notice their question. As I mentioned last time we were together, Matthew 24 is considered, oh, by some of the greatest commentators to be the most difficult chapter in the whole Bible to interpret. So I don't have all the answers. Um, That's why I said everything Jesus says here is true. Not so sure about my things. But there are three major approaches to Matthew 24, and I'll remind you of them. One is called the preterist view. You don't need to know that to be a Christian. And that view would be that everything he talks about happened in A.D. 70. Something really important happens in A.D. 70 because you have the Romans destroying the temple. That's really important. It's really significant historically. So everything in Matthew 24 happens in the preterist view. Well, that, that's an over, I think that's an overstatement. An, an, an extreme preterist is going to say even the second coming has already happened, and now we have huge problems based upon what Paul says to Timothy. But there's the preterist view. And then if we go to the other extreme, if you will, the strict futurist view, none of this is fulfilled in AD 70. It all has to do with the second coming. In that sense, none of this is applicable to the disciples. It's just all applicable to you and applicable to me, which also seems to be problematic. Thankfully, even in our day, and historically true, but even more so in our day, lots of people have kind of returned to sanity and said, you know what, it seems to be somewhere in the middle. Some of even the extreme futurists have said, actually, we need to rethink this a little bit, which is probably healthy. And the extreme preterists have said, we need to rethink some of this, not all of them, but some, and, and that's probably healthy. And so one of my favorite old school commentators on this, a man by the name of Poole, writing in the 17th century, says in effect this, AD 70, there's fulfillment as a type, as a preview of coming attractions. Second coming, to use fancy terminology, antitype, substance, ultimate fulfillment. And He goes so far as to say, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that this was a common view amongst his Protestant peers in the 17th century. I think that would be probably a pretty good, a wise thing to return to, to say, you know what, we can keep one eye on AD 70, because it looks a lot like some of this stuff was fulfilled in AD 70, at least by a type or preview or a picture. And then keep our other eye on the second coming, because some of the things that were described as happening in Judea, become cosmic worldwide, not just in Judea. And so what we're going to try to do is keep one eye AD 70, one eye on the future without becoming too cross-eyed. <laughs> okay? And, and I will admit to you, and I'm in good company to say, sometimes it's a little hard to see straight. Jesus is coming back. If you're a believer, it's going to be good. If you're an unbeliever, it's going to be bad. You should become a believer in Jesus is a good, simple way to think of it. It's why Christians before us have said things like, he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We know that for sure. 
based upon what Jesus says in this passage. Yeah, but exactly when is it going to be? Jesus is going to address that. And it might not be the answer the prophecy guru gives you with the Betty Boop hairdo. Okay? He answers the question, but it might not be the answer we've heard on television or on the internet. Okay, let's dive in a little bit more. Answer from Jesus. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. See, this prophecy is meant to be practical. Don't be led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the, the judge and deliverer, and they will lead many astray. Then it says in verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not alarmed. So again, that's practical. Don't be led astray by fake Christ's. And also, don't be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7 says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment. Yeah, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Isn't it interesting? In chapter 1, verse 21, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So I'm going to interpret that verse and that kind of emphasis in light of chapter 1, verse 21. Yeah, the one who endures to the end because they're, they're, they're really good at being faithful. No, they're going to endure to the end as they, they're going to keep looking to Christ, who's the Savior, and not follow false Christs and not be deterred by circumstances. Verse 14 then says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay. Notice the practical emphasis. Hang in there, disciples, no matter what happens. Whether we call them natural calamities in a broken, fallen world, or even the tenacious, vicious persecution against you as Christians... Don't flinch. Keep on looking to me, the Savior, for your salvation. You can do it. It's going to be okay. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. I might encourage you to do something I know is really hard to do for people like me and people like you. One way that might help you interpret this in a biblical way, is remember who he's talking to. See, I want to read this as if he's only talking to us in the 21st century. He's talking to the disciples in the first century. Okay, so remember that first. Okay, something is going to happen in the lifetime of, well, some of them are going to be martyred first, but in their general lifetime, that's relevant to what he's saying. Keep that in mind. It'll help you to interpret this in a sane way. But now then also, if we look beyond that, it applies to us as we look forward to his second coming. But don't lose sight of either one. I think it'll help you to have the balanced perspective on these things. So he says in verse 15, So when you, you disciples, 
And then eventually, you all who are believers like those original disciples. But so when you disciples see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's Daniel 9 and Daniel 11, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, some uh, roughly 200 years, it's not 200, it's 168 B.C., Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. If we go back to the temple back then, so before Jesus' time, before this temple, there was a Jewish temple, and it was desecrated. It was made unholy by a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes. Going into the temple of God that's meant to only be for the people of God and those who are priests and those who are qualified. And what does he do? He defiles the temple and sacrifices pigs, unclean Old Testament animals. Ought not be done. And so when Jesus says, let the reader understand, he's talking to a Jewish audience, Jewish audience who knows Daniel and knows their almost near history. This is common knowledge of that terrible thing that happened in our fairly recent history. And Jesus is drawing upon that to liken it to something that's going to happen to the disciples, I think is what's going on. Something like what happened in 168 is going to happen. And when you see that happen, when that happens in the temple that we're all staring at here on the Mount of Olives, you will know that it is time to get out of Dodge. You will know that it is time to flee because things are about to go horrifically. And shortly before A.D. 70, surrounding those events in A.D. 70, this very thing happens. Some of you have been to Rome and maybe you've even seen the reliefs of the Arch of Titus that shows the Roman troops with their Jewish spoils leaving because the historic reality is A.D. 70, the Romans defiled the temple. Okay? So this is something, that's, that, that, that's why preterist with a small p would be true. You know what? A.D. 70, destruction of the temple. Judgment from God via the hands of the Romans for its perversion and corruption. True. True. Then it says in verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So I'm going to put the emphasis, as I'm trying not to be cross-eyed in sorting this out, I'm trying to keep my eyes uh, focused clearly, I'm going to say... Judea, yeah, the surrounding region, not just Jerusalem, but the whole surrounding region. But notice it is localized, and it would have been localized in AD 70. Then verse 17 says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. It's just time to go. It's going to be horrific. It's going to be terrible. And historically it was. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. And there was, keep reading if you would, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And now my eyesight says it will. How, how can that be? Is it eighty seventy or is it second coming? 
And if Pat's honest, Pat says what? I'm not sure. I don't know how, how types and antitypes always work. The tribulation then was horrific, utterly horrific. No destruction on any temple ever, anything like it before. We can say that. We could also say that it's a type, it's a anticipation, it's a preview of something that will be even far more horrific, not localized, but universal at his return. Let's keep going. Verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Interesting theology Jesus has. Good, proper, but that's how horrible it's going to be. Okay, you all look like you need a little controversy. I don't know. Do you, do you need controversy? So when it comes to applying this, it's, it's a bit of a challenge depending on how you read prophecy and how you understand the Old Testament. Some people are going to suggest that the abomination of desolation ultimately will happen in the future, not just in this sense, in the Roman sense, AD 70, which is a greater Antiochus Epiphanes kind, that the future abomination of desolation is going to happen. And it's going to happen because there's going to be a rebuilt temple and God wants the temple rebuilt and God wants priests to be sacrificing animals. Um, and he wants all of that to be reinstituted. And we're going to go back to the old covenant world. And then when all of this happens again with the abomination of desolation, then you know that second coming is close. That's one perspective on this. And if that's your perspective, been there, done that. We can be friends and agree on the gospel. Another perspective would be uh, that, no, God doesn't want to have a rebuilt temple with animal sacrifices and a reinstituted priesthood. Just read the book of Hebrews. Revelation is progressive, not regressive. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, according to Ephesians, has been broken down by the gospel. We're not going to put it back up. You'd have to put it back up if you have the reinstitution of the Jewish priesthood and sacrifices in temple. So I'm over here trying to be friendly with you if you're over here. But then that, then that brings up the question, can there be any, can there be any kind of abomination of desolation that's future? Or is that just a historic thing? Antiochus Epiphanes, then AD 70, and there's no antitype future fulfillment because that already happened? Maybe so. Or, and I wouldn't stake my salvation on this, but thoughtful, mature Christian theologians, not just contemporaries, but those who've gone before us have said, yeah, there's application. There's application in the new covenant temple. And the new temple, according to the new covenant, post-resurrection of Jesus, is what? Yeah, I see an us. Sometimes the Bible focuses on individuals, but like in 1 Corinthians, there's a focus on the church. The unique dwelling of God, the unique temple of God, shows itself in the church of God. New covenant dwelling, if you will. Application? Yeah, when, when the church doesn't promote what Jesus promotes. When the church doesn't 
preach and protect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but does something else, the temple is defiled. The temple isn't holy. The temple isn't doing what it's supposed to do by divine design. I think we can all agree that that's real, whether or not that's what Jesus has in mind here. It's a bad look from God's perspective when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't promote and protect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that which is of first importance. It's why Christians have been wondering since Christ ascended, as there's been corruption in the church and the church has lost its way at different times and different eras, Christians like you and Christians like me have thought, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Short of date setting. And sane Christians have said all along, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. And that would always be true. That would always be true. We're getting closer. So I don't have a problem at all when I see the temple being defiled, used for unholy things. I don't have a problem with it, with it at all in concluding we're getting closer. This isn't good. Sometimes things cycle in and out. They get better. But it seems to me like eventually they'll get worse. You don't have the sense of it's all going to get better and then Jesus comes back. Okay, let's keep moving. Are we on verse 23? This is all review, by the way. We're reviewing the first 31 verses. I better hurry up. How about verse 23? Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. I like that statement because it's not like everything's going to be wonderful and fantastic and joyful and everything's going to go perfect and everybody's going to love you Christians. And no, he doesn't do that. He's telling you ahead of time there's going to be a rub, which I actually think is helpful. It was true in eighty seventy. I think it's true for us as well. Verse 26 says, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. I think we, we, we just got a little bit bigger than localized Judea. Although it would have been true in localized Judea that it would have been obvious that this was happening. Everyone would have known something horrific was happening in Jerusalem. Okay, it wasn't some hidden event. It was a public event. But if we will, if we can, it's even more so when we go to the universal level. It says in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. If that's your life verse, we're praying for you. <laughs> it's not going to be secretive. Destruction of the temple, not secretive. Go to Israel today. You'll know it's not secretive. But when he returns, ultimate future, it won't be secretive. It will be horrific. There's no guesswork at all. It's carnage. It's true in eighty seventy. It will be true when it comes to his return. Then, let's keep moving. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Those are echoes of Isaiah 13, 9 to 11. Then verse 30, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn 
no doubt taken from Zechariah chapter 12, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Daniel chapter 7 has that being the Messiah who will rule and reign forever and have dominion forever, ultimate fulfillment forever. Then verse 31 says, and he will send out his angels. Notice they're his loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect. Notice they're his from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. It's universal. Keep moral emphasis, moral imperative driving all of this is again, not for better charts, but it's keep looking to Jesus. They're his angels, his elect. He will return. You know what? When life is really bad and horrific and they're against you because you're for him, you've not lost your ever-loving mind to continue to trust in him. That's the big takeaway. Okay? So as we leave and and talk outside, it's a beautiful day. Maybe we're going to talk about the controversial points a little bit. And I've got more controversy. And maybe we can have a little argument back and forth, hopefully in a sanctified way. But the takeaway ends up being these kinds of things. His elect, his angels from heaven, keep trusting in him no matter what. It was true for the original disciples. It's true for every disciple after him. He's the one who can save his people from their sins. Then verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. It's okay to pay attention to current events. I make fun of people who say you have to interpret the, interpret the Bible, you know, the Bible in one hand, as one famous person used to say, and the newspaper in the other. I don't think you have to do it that way. But let's not over-respond. It's okay to pay attention to what's happening in the world and say, boldly, we're getting closer. <laughs> right? It's okay to do that. And it's okay to see bad things and injustices happening and say, we're getting closer. It's fine to do. Notice we're not going to set dates. We're going to get to that. But he's okay with signs. So also verse 33 says, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And if you want to know why this passage is hard to interpret, it's because of verses like verse 34. And my eyes just did this. Which one is it? What's he talking about? I don't know for sure. I know it's true. This evil generation, some have said, this evil generation won't pass away until this judgment has befallen these people. So within about 40 years. Okay, maybe. I'm not sure. I won't base my salvation on it, but that, that, that's a true statement anyway. I don't know if that's what Jesus means. But also like them, those in their spiritual heritage will face judgment as well, looking to the second advent, the second coming of Christ. That's true as well. I'm just not sure if that's what he means by this. We do know that his, the second coming didn't happen in AD 70 or we have bigger problems. Not altogether sure. 
Then verse 35 says, says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What a statement that is. What a statement regarding his, let's say, deity. That's God talk. That's the way God speaks in the Old Testament. This is how it's going to be. You can absolutely spiritually bank on this. And as theologians tell us sometimes, we may have even heard it in our conference last weekend, as soon as you start emphasizing the deity of Christ, it's time to also emphasize the humanity of Christ. Because both are true. He needs to be a human being to be our Savior because we're human beings. He also is the eternal divine one who knows all things as the eternal son. Well, here's the eternal son knowing all things kind of statement in verse 35. But then let's read verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. That's definite incarnation, humility, self-limitation kind of talk. Human emphasis. It's kind of fascinating, I think. Hope you do as well. So how about this? There's a lot to know. There's a lot to know about prophecy. Jesus has been saying a lot of things. Like, don't be alarmed. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And you can learn from nature about signs and things happening. A lot of things you should know. A lot of things you can know. But here's something you don't know. And I would suggest to you that if I'm making it sound like I know, you should run. Because <laughs> Jesus says he doesn't know. But we seem to make a whole industry out of giving people the impression that this verse isn't in the Bible. There's a lot of things to know. A lot of things we can't know based upon what Jesus says here. Okay, now for a lesson or two from the past. Oh, please turn turn your minds on. I hope they've been on the whole time. But if you're waiting for our second point of controversy where we'll have some good um, entryway talk, some good discussion, let's learn from the past about how this works. Verse 37 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when the Messiah returns, there's going to be salvation for some who trust in him, and there's going to be judgment for those who don't trust in him, kind of like in the days of Noah. There was salvation through the ark and judgment through the waters, right? Pretty straightforward. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, do you want to be swept away? If you're in the Noah narrative? Do you want to be swept away by the water? Uh Uh-uh. You don't want to be swept away. Just keep that in mind as we work our way through this. But the point is pretty straightforward. The return of Christ, there's going to be deliverance, salvation, and there's going to be judgment. Keep trusting in me. Okay, let's keep moving. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Or as a couple of older translations say, left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. And one left, or again, as in a couple of older translations say, left behind. 
Now, what's the gist of it? What's the, what's the, what's the big point that we can all agree on? When Christ returns, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Some are going to be saved. Some are going to be judged. Um, so keep trusting in Christ. And then also, you know, at the return, it's going to be like two people in the field. And there are two people. And one is going to be saved and one is going to be judged. Right? Can we all agree on that? I think we could all agree on that. Pretty straightforward. Here's where the controversy comes. Let me meddle in your, your mind just a little bit. Do you want to be left behind? I wish we'd all been ready. Anybody know that song? I listened to it last night. You're dating yourself if you do. Or maybe you listen to the, the, the later version by DC Talk. Anyway. And that's dating you as well, I'm sure, right? Okay. Since it is a multi-million dollar industry, I just want to meddle with your mind just a little bit. Do you want to be left behind or not? Based upon this text. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Well, if we interpret that in light of the Noah thing, swept them all away. They're taken in judgment. Could it possibly be that we have a whole quadzillion, billion, jillion dollar industry based upon a really strange interpretation of this passage? I don't know. Right? I think we can all be friends. I have one, one Bible scholar that I respect so much. And it has so much good insight on this passage that says the left behind ones are the unsaved ones. So you can keep your Tim LaHaye books. Okay. <laughs> Another scholar, friend of mine, who I have the utmost admiration for when it comes to his understanding of such things, would say the left behind ones in this passage are the saved ones. You want to be left behind. Here's what he says. Who in the episode was taken and who left behind? Noah and his family were left behind. And everyone else is taken in the floodwaters of judgment. That establishes the pattern and the analogy that informs the rest of the passage. So it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men are working. One will be taken and the other left. Two women are making bread. One will be taken and the other left. Following the analogy with Noah, one does not want to be taken because that is to be destroyed. One wants to be left behind. All right. That's kind of interesting to think about, if nothing else. A church tried to hire me one time, um, off topic a little bit, but related. And their selling point to me was we had a mutual friend, a, a, a well-known theologian author, uh, and so they name dropped his name and misspelled his last name. And then they said that their church was founded by Tim LaHaye. They spelled it one way, one place and another way, a different place. And I think both were misspelled. <laughs> so I thought maybe I don't need to, they, they need a pastor. <laughs> Hopefully someone went to go pastor the church, but, but anyway, off topic, I, I think we can argue back and forth about these things, but I think it's interesting to maybe give it a second look. The point is the same though. When Jesus returns, if you're trusting in him, it's going to be good for you. 
And when Jesus returns, if you're not trusting in him, it's not going to be good for you, right? Has he paid for your sins? Are you going to face the justice of God? So all kidding aside, that's the point of this. And hopefully we can all agree to that. Application comes in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. Be vigilant. Be sober-minded. Right? That's the idea for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know. So stay awake. Be vigilant. Then it says in verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Again, vigilance, diligence, and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready. Okay, so stay awake, stay awake, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In light of the whole, keep looking to Christ. The picture of staying awake is you're on alert, not because your your salvation depends upon your efforts, but you're going to keep looking to Christ. 121, then verse 45, and we'll wrap it up. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed. That's what you want. You want reward. You want affirmation. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. That's a reward. That's honor. That's doing the right thing, glorifying him. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces. Pretty graphic. Covenant breaker talk and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will will be weeping and gnashing of teeth something jesus uses elsewhere to describe condemnation and judgment and even hell take away is he's the one and only one who can save his people from their sins No matter what happens as far as earthquakes, wars, famines, natural disasters in a broken world, God is faithful. You should keep trusting Him. He came from heaven. They're His angels. They're His elect. In addition, no matter what happens to you because you're a Christian, if you're trusting in the one and only one who came from heaven, they're His angels. They're His elect who came to save his people from their sins, keep trusting him, alertly so, awakely so, to make up words. He's helping the disciples face A.D. 70 and anything and everything else, natural calamity, persecution, and he's helping us face anything, natural calamity, persecution. You're not crazy if you're trusting in Jesus, the resurrected one who made these things clear. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We do have questions. But we are thankful to know that Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we are weary and burdened because of your strict requirements that we do not meet, and therefore our sin. And we are burdened because of the world around us and all of the trouble that it brings to us. So help us to look outside of ourselves, to look to Christ, and to find salvation rest in him but to find an ongoing, sustaining kind of rest because we have salvation rest. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a great day.